Good morning. It is so great to see so many smiling faces. In fact, it's pretty good to see so many faces that aren't smiling. I can see your face for a lot of them, so that's good. We're getting there. We're on our way. Glad that you are here this morning. If you're joining us online, uh, glad that you're with us as well. We're spending a couple weeks in the Old Testament. We're talking about the gospel according to Abraham, and I'm a little bit impressed that so many of you are here today, because last week I warned you that today I was going to be speaking to control freaks. Remember that? Here's my joke for this morning. Uh, Brittany, help me out here. Knock, knock. Control freak. Now you say control freak who? Yeah, good. Okay. You get that? You understand that? Yeah, she'll explain it to you. Yeah. You know, the truth is, oh, we're all a little bit of control freaks. Uh, We have a hard time acknowledging that. And we have a hard time believing that of ourselves. You know, we all kind of have the mindset, I'm not a control freak. But can I show you the right way to do that? We're all a little bit uh, controlling. So, I know that everyone is thinking that this is the perfect sermon for someone else, right? (laughs) You all have someone in your mind right now that you're thinking, boy, I wish they were here because they really need to hear this. I want you to picture that person. Just get a picture in your mind of the person that you know needs to hear this sermon, okay? And just know that they're probably thinking of you, too. So, got that going. There is an uh, old country song. It's like 40, 50 years old. Kind of lost a memory, I think, now. But Tom Paul Glazer sang years ago this song about a husband talking to his wife. And the, the song goes like this. This man says to his wife, put another log on the fire. Anyone recognize that song? Yeah, there you go. Put another log on the fire. Fix me up some bacon and some beans. Go out to the car and change the tire. Sew my clothes and fix... Darn my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe and then go fetch my slippers. Boil me up another pot of tea. Put another log on the fire. And come and tell me why you're leaving me. (laughs) You know, if we're honest with ourselves... We all would agree that that we like to have things our way. We like to do things our way. We like it when things go our way. We like when people do what we want people to do, and we like when they do it when we want them to do it. Most of us like to be in control. We like things our way. Real quick survey. How many of you here today would admit that you're a control freak? Just, just raise your hand. Okay, yeah, own it. There you go. Okay, several very uh, honest people in the auditorium this morning. How many of you believe that you live in a home with a control freak? Anybody? Uh, okay. Okay, different hands go up. And I'm sure if I asked our kids, you know, how many of their parents are control freaks, it would be 100%. Right? We get that. 
But we all like to try to manage and plan and predict and orchestrate our lives so that we know what is going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to take place, where it's going to take place. Because on some level, we are all control freaks. We're just normal people, I get it. But we sort of obsess with being in control. And this is a tough one for Christians. Because intellectually, we know that this overwhelming desire to be in control, it's not from God. Now, we understand intellectually that, in fact, I believe this overwhelming desire to be in control, I think it's from Satan. You know, we mistakenly believe that being in control is going to help us get where we want to be. It's going to make us happy. It's going to get us fulfilled and successful. But the reality is our our controlling nature sort of stifles God's ability to intervene in our lives. And we get such a tight grip on things in our own lives that we're we're kind of keeping God from, from acting in our lives. So it's kind of an impediment to our trusting God, a barrier this desperate desire to to control our lives. Not allowing God to control our lives. In this series, the, The Gospel According to Abraham, we are looking at the life of this giant of faith, this guy by the name of Abraham, whose life is forever changed when he begins paying a little less attention to himself and a little more attention to God. Now, last week, We talked a little bit about the beginning of Abraham's story. Remember, we talked about the fact that God called him to leave his home or the Chaldeans to go to a place that he would tell him later. And and Abraham did that. He actually left Ur, but then he ended up settling in Haran. And I asked you last week, where is your Haran? Where is the place that you have kind of settled short of where God wants you to be? This morning, we're going to look at kind of the middle part of this story of Abraham. And what we're going to find is this giant of the faith, this father of the faithful, Abraham, along with his wife, Sarah, they were a little bit of control freaks. Uh, Just to get us back up to speed with the story, uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is really a radical promise that God makes to Abraham. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. All the people of the world are going to be blessed through you and your descendants. That is a staggering promise. It's even more staggering when you consider the fact that when God made this promise to Abraham, he was an old man. He and his wife, they're they're past the age of of bearing children. In fact, uh, Sarah's not able to have children. Abraham's an old man, Sarah, not much younger. So this promise of God, it's, it's really hard to believe which is what makes this promise of God so great. The fact that God sets the bar so high that there's no way Abraham nor Sarah nor anyone else could ever go back and say, well, you know, we kind of did that on our own. 
God might have had a hand in that, but, but we could have done it without God. There's no way anyone can say that about this promise that God's making Abraham. In fact, I, I've got a picture here for you to, to, to maybe ex, uh, explain this a little bit better. We see that little baby, you know, uh, walking up to that uh, huge weight. Well, I got this. And we all look at that picture, and we understand there's absolutely no way that baby is going to pick up those weights. It just, it's, it's impossible. We get it. That's the promise that God makes to Abraham. He sets the bar so high that there's absolutely, positively, no way that Abraham could do this on his own. In fact, God's promises are, are, are even better than we imagine them to be. Now, God says, I want to bless you. And somehow we, we condense that into, well, he must be talking about health and happiness and prosperity. God's like, no, I, I want to bless you with so much more. My blessings go so much deeper than that. God's promises are your heart can be healed. Your character can be renewed. Your bitterness can be erased from your heart. Your sorrow can be turned into joy. I want to bless you. And he sets that bar so high that we realize we could never get there on our own. We could never do what God is, is promising short of God's intervention. Now, that's the nature of the promise that's given to Abraham and, and Sarah. It is so unimaginably good that they have a hard time believing it. But they obey God. They, they follow. They trust Him for a time. They leave everything behind. They, they, they set out. Uh, they settle in Haran, but they do eventually leave Haran. They travel to foreign lands. They survive famine. They survive a pharaoh. They survive some infighting amongst the family. But eventually, they do end up where God wants them to be. They end up in Canaan. They end up in the promised land, and it appears that God's promises, they're all falling into place with one small problem. No child. No son of promise. A year goes by. No child. Another year goes by. No child. Five years go by. Nothing. Over a decade goes by. And there's no child of promise. And Abraham and Sarah have to start doubting a little bit, right? Maybe we didn't quite understand God when he made this promise. Maybe we didn't hear him right. Maybe we interpreted this differently than what God meant. And I don't know, maybe he's expecting us to get involved and do something because, you know, it's been a long time. And we are not getting any younger. And there's no child. So that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning in Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. 
They make a decision, and it's a decision that's not just going to change their lives. It is a decision that will change the course of human history. Let me make a couple observations about this decision that Abraham and Sarah come up with. First, their decision is motivated by one emotion. Think about this. The decision that Abraham and Sarah make to kind of take matters into their own hands, it's not motivated by greed or hate or resentment or lust, nothing like that. It's predicated on one emotion, and that's disappointment. And who are they disappointed with? Well, they're disappointed in God. They're disappointed that God hasn't done what God promised He would do. See, Abraham and Sarah, they they expect the same thing from God that we expect from God. God gives us a promise, and we're like, five, four, three, two, one. Where's the fulfillment, God? Hey, you made me this promise, or I prayed about this on Sunday, and it's already Tuesday, And I'm starting to doubt maybe that uh, you're as powerful and as good as I've always believed you to be, God, because I'm not seeing the answer here. We expect God's answers to come quickly, completely, and pretty much painlessly, right? That's how we expect God to respond. No unknown variables. See, God, you kind of promised this to me, and I'm not seeing it yet. So I've got these doubts. And I'm very disappointed in you, God, because you haven't held up your end of the bargain. That's sort of the response of Abraham and Sarah. God isn't answering our prayers or meeting our needs like we expect Him to. So we're going to have to fill in the gaps on our own, right? In this case, filling in the gaps meant Abraham meet Hagar. Hagar meet Abraham. Interesting. It's not that Abraham and Sarah were, were attempting to commit some atrocious sin here, right? That's not what's going on. What's going on is they're disappointed the way their life is turning out. They're disappointed that things aren't different in their lives. And they feel a little bit like God has let them down. Somehow God hasn't met their expectations. See, God, we wanted you to fulfill this promise quickly and completely without any heartache. And when you didn't do it, when we thought you should do it, well, obviously we had to step in. We had to do something ourselves. This is a decision that is motivated by a disappointment in God. Another observation. When Abraham and Sarah start to feel disappointed with God, God starts to look like he's maybe part of the problem, not part of the solution. Uh, Sarah says, the Lord has kept me from having children. Now that is not the reality of the situation. That is not what is going on here. But it's certainly Sarah's perception, isn't it? No, this is God's fault. God is not coming through for us. God is not keeping His promise. That is Sarah's perception, so in a way that's her reality. Did that ever happen to you? You're thinking to yourself, I'm trying to stay pure in my relationships, but I'm still alone. And I'm still lonely. And you get to feel like 
know, being obedient to God, it's making my life more miserable. Or at work, I'm, I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to be an employee of integrity. I'm trying to do things the right way. But I see all these people around me that aren't. That they're cutting corners and they're being dishonest and they're stabbing people in the back and they're getting advanced. They're getting the promotions. And it seems like my obedience to God is limiting me. I mean, it seems like me being obedient to God is making problems in my life. I'm not sure this, this faithful thing is, is really worth it. And it's possible over time to start viewing obedience to God, whether it's purity or honesty, you know, whatever it might be, start seeing it as a liability in my life. You know, doing things God's way, it's, it, it's not getting me where I thought it was going to get me. Now, again, that is not the reality of the situation. But sometimes that's our perception. So we find ourselves, just like Sarah, starting to blame God. And in the process, we somehow make the conclusion that, well, I think I know better than God. I think I've got a better solution. And we start to take control of our lives that have nothing to do with, with living in uh, God's will, which have nothing to do with listening to God, which has everything to do with trying to get what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. Now, having said that, I want to be sure you don't mishear me this morning. This message is not meant for us to say, well, I'll just be passive and I'll be indifferent. That is not the message this morning. Remember last week, we talked about the fact that God said go, and we have to go. We have to do something. We have to move. We have to grow. We have to mature. Um, Abraham had to go, had to follow. So do we. But we've got to do that in the will of God. You know, when you think about it, there's a whole lot of other choices that Abraham and Sarah could have had here. They, they could have just kept praying to God. Or they could have just kept praying for patience, trusting God. They could have treated Hagar with kindness, with compassion and not used her. They could have just gone to God and said, hey, God, we're confused. You know, we're trying to understand what's happening here, but would you help us to see that? None of those responses, by the way, would have been passive. And none of those responses would have indicated an indifference. But of course, Abraham and Sarah, they don't choose any of those responses. Instead, they choose to just go ahead and control the situation themselves. They decided that being faithful, being obedient, being uh, in a position where we're patiently waiting for God, um, it's not working out. So they came up with their alternative solution. Let's go back and see how that was working for them. Chapter 16, verse 4. When she, Sarah, knew that she, Hagar, was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. See what Sarah just does? First she blames God. Now she blames Abraham. Even though this whole thing, kind of Sarah's idea. 
I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. So now Sarah hates Hagar, and she's not too crazy about Abraham right now either. She's saying, this is all your fault. And Abraham, in pure guy fashion, answers, your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Abraham says, this is not my fault, and this is not my problem. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar. So she, Hagar, fled from her. What seemed like such a great solution at the time did not solve the problem, did it? Not only did it not uh, solve the problem, it complicates matters incredibly. It, it, it does nothing towards fulfilling the promise, by the way. In fact, it, it puts a barrier to the promise because remember, God set the bar really high and God said, the descendant's going to come through you, Abraham and Sarah. So now... There's, op- there, there, there's complications because now the, the heir, the firstborn son of Abraham, isn't going to be Isaac. Now it's going to be Ishmael. The long-term consequences of this one decision are devastating. And we know this. You know, the Jews traced their lineage back to Abraham through Isaac. The Muslims traced their lineage back to Abraham through Ishmael. An angel of the Lord comes to Hagar and gives her a message about the child that she would have. It's in Genesis chapter 16, verse 11. It's a sobering prophecy. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. And then listen to what the angel says about this boy she's about to give birth to. It is... It is a harsh statement. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Mothers, how would you like to hear that about your child right before he's born? He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And of course, we know that angel was dead on. That message was exactly right. There's been hostility ever since. And that hostility, it's in the news this week, that hostility can be traced back to one decision that Abraham and Sarah made, the decision that they had to be in control. It is almost impossible to understate the kind of damage that had been done because Abraham and Sarah couldn't wait for God to do what God promised he would do. Now, on one level, it seemed so innocent, didn't it? But boy, the heartache and and the misery, it's incomprehensible. And that really is the result any time we try to take control away from God. You know, that progression that we see from Abraham's life, it's the same progression that we go through. You know, we have these human expectations, and then when things don't play out like we think they should, it leads to disappointment. And then when we start getting disappointed, we get really impatient, and we think we got to do something, so we're going to take control, which of course leads to disaster. 
I mean, we, we decide we're going to take control away from God and the result is a train wreck or a plane wreck, I guess. You know, it just never works out. There's not a single story in the Bible that you can read where someone says, hey, it looks like my way was better than God's way. That's not in the Bible. In fact, there's no story in the Bible where you read anybody who says, well, my way was just as good as God's way. It was at least an acceptable alternative. You won't find that in Scripture. God's way is always right, and it's always best. We've got to remember when God makes a promise, He means what He says. We've got to remember, God knows what He's doing. He doesn't want our help. He wants our heart. He wants to bless us. He wants what's best for us. He wants the best from us because he wants what's best for us. I mentioned last week my definition of faith for dummies, just the belief that God really is good. God wants us to be convinced that he really is good, that he doesn't want to curse us. He wants to bless us. God wants us to acknowledge that he, not we, are in control. Now, the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, it's full of good news and bad news. You know, the the good news for us is even though we do really dumb things, even though we do really stupid things, God is still good. And God still loves us. And he won't quit on us, not for for a minute. Uh, He didn't quit on Abraham either. Uh, Back to Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And the text, you can read it for yourself, actually goes on to talk about how this child Ishmael would be blessed by God. Now, I said there was good news and bad news all through this story. Uh, The good news is God is still good. Uh, The bad news is there are no shortcuts to redemption. We would like to take them. We would like to find them. But there's no shortcuts when it comes to redemption. Yes, Hagar is a bit of a pawn in this whole story, but she's a little bit of a control freak as well. You know, she tries to control the situation by running away. I'm just going to make a run for it. And sometimes we think the best way out of a situation is, I'm just going to make a run for it. Uh, I'm just going to run away. Away from my mistakes and away from the consequences of my mistakes. I just want to get out of this thing completely and painlessly. I just want to get out of this mess that I find myself in, and I don't care about the fallout. I don't want to trust God to be with me and work through the mess for me. But notice what the word of the Lord is to Hagar. The angel of the Lord told her, go back. I want you to go back. I want you to go back to Abraham. I want you to go back to Sarah. I want you to go back to that situation. I want you to go back to that frustration. I want you to go back to that mess. But the promise was, 
I'm going to be with you when you go back. For Hagar, running away wasn't an option. Go back. You can't just bounce from one relationship to another. You just can't bounce from one bad mistake to another, one bad decision. You've got to deal with it. But I'm going to help you deal with it. If it's sin, you've got to name it. You've got to deal with it. You've got to confess it. You've got to repent of it. You've got to allow God to be in control. Go back. Yeah, there'll be consequences to deal with, but you won't deal with them alone. And while God doesn't always remove the hurt and the pain and the frustration from those consequences, He does transform our hearts. And He does shape our characters. God doesn't want us to remain in the same broken, frustrated, uh, disappointed state. We've got to go back. God says, "I I want to redeem that. I want to redeem that mess you made. Now, I said there's good news, there's bad news all through this story. Let me leave you with the best news of the story. God absolutely did keep his promise. And God absolutely did redeem that situation. And God absolutely did send the ultimate redeemer, descendant of Abraham, the great redeemer, Jesus Christ, that can redeem anyone from anything, Let me leave you with a story that you, some of you, I'm sure, have heard. Um, it's about the great violinist uh, Ixod Perlman. was once playing a concert, and in the middle of a piece, uh, one of the strings on his violin broke, and everybody heard it. Loud crack. Everybody knew the string had broken. And the conductor of the orchestra stopped the, the piece, waiting for Perlman to fix the string or to get another instrument. But Perlman told the conductor, just go ahead and start over. And the conductor started the piece again, and Perlman played it on three strings. He modulated, he improvised, he changed it as he went. He actually retuned a couple of the strings as he was playing. And he played the entire piece on three strings of his violin. When it was over, there was this thunderous applause because the crowd realized that they had just seen a musical genius who was able to do that. And then when the applause died down, Perlman walked to the microphone and said, it is my gift and it is my joy to make beautiful music with what remains. It is my gift. It is my joy to make beautiful music with what remains. There are times in our lives when we mess up so badly, and we all do, we all do. We all do things that we would give anything to be able to undo. We all say things that we wish we could unsay. We make mistakes that we regret so badly. And then God steps in. And he says, it is my gift. And it is my joy to make beautiful music with what remains. God can make new music in your life. Yeah, everybody heard the the string break. Everybody saw you mess up. Everybody knows it. Everybody heard it. Everybody sees it. But God can make beautiful music with what remains. And the reality is, it's even better. It's better music 
because we realize the genius of the great composer. We realize what God has done in our messed up lives. How Jesus has redeemed our faults and our failures and our sins. You know, our song is so far from being finished. You know, this song that we're all in the middle of, it's not over. I, I, I always tell you, you know, your story, your story is so far from being over. I don't care how old you are. Your story is a long way from the end. You know, the story of your marriage, the story of your kids, the, the story of your work environment, the story of your Christian life, it is so far from being finished. So my question this morning is, will you stop trying to take control of your life? And will you turn that over to the one who's in control anyway? I don't know what your perception is of control, but the reality is God's in control. Okay? Whether we want to admit it or not, God is in control. Would you be willing to follow Him wherever He leads, wherever He tells you to go, whatever He asks you to do? Will you trust Him to take those broken strings of our life and make beautiful music with it? We've got a song that we're going to sing in just a minute, a song of encouragement. Uh, For our online guests, when this song is over, we'll be leaving you, but there is a link that will be there where you can uh, get in touch with the Bay Area Church here and have someone pray with you or pray for you if you'd like to do that. For those in the auditorium this morning, uh, during the song, if you've got something in your life that you just would like the prayers of your church family, there'll be some people at the front of the auditorium. Um, you can meet us there, and we'll pray about it. Again, it'll just be us. It won't be our online family. But uh, we'll invite you to join us in the front uh, while we stand and, and sing.